0: Welcome to Commons and Chronicles, the podcast where we talk about all the best creative commons and reusable open game license content. If you need resources for your creative writing, game design, or you just love lore, Commons and Chronicles is for you. This is Clatu, and you're listening to Chronicles and Commons, and in this episode I want to talk about the flora and fauna of Barsoom from the Edgar Rice Burroughs John Carter series. We've talked about most of all the races on Barsoom. Now, I'm going to give you a little hint here. There's actually one that I haven't covered yet, but, or technically two. Uh, I don't want to get into it, though, because I want that to be kind of a focus of its own episode... Because I think that it's just that good, and you'll hopefully, ideally, you'll find out why I'm saying that. Well, eventually for yourself, but certainly uh, when I when I do the episode, you'll you'll see what I mean. So the the um the, and to reiterate, there there are so, there's only a there are so many Barsoom novels, and I'm doing a subset of them because I'm only doing the public domain books. Now I do want to reiterate as well, because I haven't really mentioned it lately, that there is a there's already an RPG out there that is based on the John Carter series and it's probably worth looking at if you are really really into John Carter of Mars it is by a company called Modifius there are two drawbacks i guess of of Modifius doing this this game one is that their game the, the, the game itself is not open game license whether that actually matters to you or not is going to depend on whether you want to sort of build upon what they've built. Um, and then the other maybe drawback is that they use a, a, a system called the 2D20 system, which um, I've never played, actually, but um, it's you know, certainly it's, it's something that you would have to learn if you're used to um, you know, a D20 system or a, um, a, a dice pool system or a fate system or whatever so that, that may or may not be a drawback however it's probably worth considering looking into the game based on the information that they would have in their books but again I can't guarantee which, which parts of the information they have because I've never looked at it I, I don't know that, that which parts that they have are you know based on public domain information versus what they've made up so I, it might be difficult to sort of extricate one from the other I'm not sure so i'm I'm covering books that are public domain. so the the topics that I'm covering are ripe for iteration and for inclusion in your own fiction or uh, game works or whatever. I might be leaving some things out. I don't I'm not intentionally doing that, but um, th- there there are. There are a couple of things that are mentioned offhand, and then he either forgets to get back to them later, or he does, but I've forgotten at that point to take note of it. Who knows? Because I feel like in my head I took note of it. Um, so really, the the main thing here are the beasts of, of Barsoom. Uh, and we may as well start out with the big, the, the classic one. It's the the worst sort of horrendous uh, uh, the, the worst abomination apparently turn of the century authors could think of seemed to be pretty consistently because I've read this in Edgar Rice Burroughs I've read it in uh, Lovecraft and I feel like I've read it elsewhere but pretty consistently it seems like a white ape is just to to turn of the century science fiction authors the pro- one of the worst things you could imagine it, it is one of those things that I keep coming across and i just don't get it in in my in the depths of my soul i just don't understand why honestly i don't understand why an ape is all that terrifying and and that's that's incorrect i know that like if i if i went to a zoo and i climbed into a into the cave uh, into the cage of uh, containing a gorilla i understand that i would be in danger and i would probably truly feel the horror of of how terrifying an ape could be. So I do I get that. Um, funny story, I was at an what, what they call an ANP show here in New Zealand. It was it's a it's a livestock show where where people sort of take prizes for the the biggest cow or the biggest sheep or what, you know, like weird stuff like that. Stuff that I'm completely not used to. But I I saw a compet part of the competition for the the cow. And I I saw how these cows were just pushing the people who were leading them out, you know, to sh- to show the cow off. Th- there was just so much force behind these these cattle. And and this was this isn't understand. This isn't like a rodeo or anything like where people are are abusing the animals or or jumping on their backs and making them buck or anything like that. This was purely a it was a like a livestock sort of like a county fair type thing where you. You show the animal and I don't know the one that looks best by some, by some collection of, of, of rules uh, wins the blue Ribbon prize. Actually, it was a red ribbon, I think for first, blue for second, something like that. But point is, I, I, I never I, I knew that you know cattle, cows, whatever were, were big and I knew that they were legendarily pretty hefty. They, you know you, you'd see them drawing carts in old movies and stuff. But I never really kind of saw it for myself, and I saw this pretty big dude, like a big farmer leading his his cow out onto the into the into the field to show the judges and the cow didn't want to do it and was or was just being stubborn and and would just kind of like resist or would sort of would would sort of push or something, and you could just see the the person like being physically just displaced and it was pretty terrific so yeah, some of these animals with all that muscle, they, they can be terrifying. And for some reason, the, the white ape was um, considered pretty terrifying. Now, these white apes, to be fair, are colossal. They are colossal ape-like creatures. They are white uh, and, ha- and, and hairless, except for an, uh, except for an enormous shock of bristly hair upon its head. Um, they mate for life, as far as we can tell, or at least they, they take mates. Maybe it's not for life, but they definitely hang out with their mate for a while. Um, they do look pretty much like earth apes, from what, from what the description itself says. They are about 10 or 15 feet tall, depending on whether you're talking about the male or the female of the species. And um, they have four arms. That's significant to, to, to understand. They have ex- uh, four arms, and then there are two legs, uh, and then they have, I, I think they have four arms, I don't actually see note of that here now, and I'm—I'm I'm, now I'm not 100% sure whether I just saw like a picture on the internet interpretation, maybe on that RPG box set actually, I'm not sure. Um, I, if I recall, they have four arms like the green Martians do, and then they, they are capable of using tools of, of of you know rudimentary tools. So, for instance, um, when John Carter has a very close encounter with one in I think book three, uh, one of them swings a cudgel at him. So he's got a, a nice big a nice big um, uh, club that he's he's swinging around. I got the distinct impression that they were meant to be maybe borderline intelligent. You know, they were, like, just intelligent enough to be dangerous. They they mated for extended periods of time. They used tools. They kind of, I think they, they kind of made a little, not a house, but they, you know, they, they camped out in a place and it seemed like home. And when John sort of stumbled into their domain, that's when they started trying to kill him. So it was pretty pretty fair, really, honestly. Um, but of course, in turn-of-the-century books, it's never fair to um, be threatened by an animal, even if you're barging in on the animal's domain. So the white apes are, are mentioned several times throughout the books, actually. They, they live uh, near the or within the the valley of of Issus, so they're they're a great reason to sort of stay away from from Iss. And not only because they um, but because Iss contains it is the homeland of, of a of a fearsome cult, but also because if you're if you're not being chased by the cult members, then you're you're being hunted by white apes and plant men. I might as well talk about plant men next, I guess. So the plant men. Live also in the mysterious is um, toward the slyian infested waters of the lost sea of Chorus. So that's where the white white apes also hang out sometimes. Uh, white apes apparently go farther north though, because um, they they are encountered. They're, they they seem to be encountered in several areas, but but certainly they're they're infamous for hanging out with the plant men. Um, not not necessarily. I don't. I didn't get the sense that they were friends with the plant men. It's just that. The two dangers were the plant men and the white apes in this lost sea, of chorus. The plant men are... They, they are human-like creatures, except they are made of plants. Um, they are... They have snake-like hair upon their heads, which um, sort of almost serve as antenna. It's, it's almost as if, though, they... Their hair, as it were, were um, sentient in itself. It would, you know, almost it would kind of move around as if looking or or, or smelling for for clues of, of what's out there. These um, these plant men are from the original tree of life that spawned all life on Barsoom. So technically, arguably, the plant men are actually the, the original, original living creatures of of Barsoom. They are pretty warlike, or at least I should say they're they're quite defensive of their territory. There's no indication that the plant men fight one another, but it, they, they do seem to be pretty antagonistic. I mean, certainly they're feared within the Lost Sea of Chorus, or around the Lost Sea of Chorus. They are... They are antagonistic to some of the larger settlements as well. They out outright attack one of the settlements in the um, in the in the third book, the Gods of Mars. They they are charging one of the the city walls, and um, they have a unique fighting style. They 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 do a, a sort of a mad rush at their enemies, and then they. They jump. They leap into the air. Bizarrely, not 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 what you might expect of of plant men. I, I think a lot of us in in sort of our very strict kind of um, modern design sensibilities would think, okay, well, plant men are going to uh, burrow underground suddenly, like right when they reach you, they'll they'll burrow underground and they'll pop right back up behind you and claw clobber you over the head or something like that but that's not what they do instead they they jump into the air over your head and right as they're over you they swing down and um crack your skull like quote as though it had been an eggshell and that's what they do and plant men are are pretty um even though they are plant men they are essentially a they're, they're just a they're, an, they're a beast. They're a, a monster. They, we, we don't meet, at least within the public domain books, as far as I'm aware, we don't meet plant men, we don't converse with them, we don't um, get a sense for any kind of advanced culture or anything like that. They are, um, as far as I can tell, they are purely... They're, they're just evil, mean, scary creatures that um, try to kill things that they encounter, usually without any kind of real reason. Okay, so um, next there's the banth. That's B-A-N-T-H. So not a bantha, B-A-N-T-H-A, just a banth. banth. The banths are lions. That's basically what they are. They, are um, they have tiny ears on their head. They're the big, scary mouth full of sharp and powerful fangs. And ten legs. So five on each side. Ten legs. They they sort of creep along the ground, uh, ready to paralyze their prey, and that's what they seem to be. They're, they're they're stalkers. They they follow things out in the wilderness. They'll creep behind it, and then of course other other creatures will will follow the banth in, in just like in real life. Um, smaller creatures will follow you know the lion or something, hoping to sort of capitalize on either the the. The, the unused portion of their prey or or they're, they're, they hope that the banth might might stalk the prey into relative exhaustion and then give up and leave, leaving some other creature to then actually close in uh, for the kill. They're not they don't seem to be tree tr- tree climbers um, as far as I can tell. In, in fact, um, one character who we'll get into uh, in a later episode climbs up a tree to get away from a, a banth and it does not. It does not attempt to pursue into the tree. It does lurk around the bottom of the tree in hopes of 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 the of this character coming out of the tree um, and and then being able to kill, get, move in for the kill. But it it does not does not pursue into the tree. So it doesn't seem to be a tree dwelling uh, cat at all. I mean, not that lions are. I'm just I'm just explaining to you that that well, most lions aren't. Um, I'm just saying that yeah, there's. They do seem to be pretty uh fond of the land they creep around i I generally get the sense that they are very they they serve sort of the niche in the ecosystem as the the same as the lion. It's kind of the king of the jungle as far as i can tell it it seems to be pretty pretty fearsome it It has a hideous roar that that awakens the hills themselves it it echoes through the whole valley and 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 things. Things respond, or they they um, chirp back to you know to warn the banth not to come over there and so on. So it's it has an impact on the, on the local on the local ecosystem. I don't know that they necessarily hang out in packs, but then again, I, I, I got the sense that where one banth was, there were probably several others. So I I couldn't tell whether that was a that was sort of an expectation like this is a pack of banths, or whether it's just, this is an area where there happen to be banths around, and so we should be careful. So I'm not too sure about sort of their social structure, but they are, they're just, they're a big, dumb hunting animal. Uh, and, and dumb, I, I just mean, they're they're not, they, they don't have, they don't talk, and they don't, they don't think, but I mean, or they think, but they, they don't have a, a very high intelligence. They're just, they're just an animal, in other words. Okay, so next is a um A callet a is, I think, I want to say it's the first... I believe it might be the first... might be the second, actually. As the more I say it, the more I think it might be the second beast that we encounter on Barsoom. Um, either way, one of the early ones, it appears in the first book and uh, continues through, through several of them. Um, the, 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 the famous one is Woola. W O O L A i believe is his name and this is the it's really the hound dog that is given to John Carter in the first book and accompanies him as his as his um, well as his dog really i mean it serves the same purpose as a guard dog or a hound dog on earth except it's a callet. it's um, not at all like a dog in terms of 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 its of, of its of appearance, but it, it behaves more or less like a dog. So I'll, I'll just read a little bit out of John Carter when we first encounter this callet. Sola motioned me to be seated upon a pile of silks near the center of the room, and turning, made a peculiar hissing sound, as though signaling to someone in an adjoining room. In response to her call, I obtained my first sight of a new Martian wonder. It waddled in on its ten short legs and squatted down before the girl like an obedient puppy, the thing was about the size of a Shetland pony, but its head bore a slight resemblance to that of a frog, except that the jaws were equipped with three rows of long, sharp tusks. And that's our introduction to Woola. From then on, he's, he is constantly described as either a dog or a puppy or, or some such thing. John Carter even li- uh, likens him to his own dog on Earth, back on Earth. So he is very much... The calllet is very much a dog and you'll you'll experience you'll encounter uh callot being used more or less as a as an insult uh, to you know to suggest that someone is a calllet is to suggest that they're a dog you know you're you a filthy filthy dog uh or a cur instead of that you say you're a callet on on Barsoon. next up is the zititatar with zittidar z i t i delta a r Zitidar. The zitadar, I I always want to say zit, zititar, but it's zitadar. The um zitadar is a big big animal. It's a big mastodon type animal. Heavy draft animals. Um, they pull carts and 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 carry hefty loads. That's what they are. That's what they do. Um, because the banth sounds so much like a bantha, I basically default. To the banth, remember, is the little lion. A bantha is the thing in Star Wars that the Sand People ride. So the Zitidar, to me, is a Star Wars bantha. I mean, let's face it. There's a lot in Star Wars that kind of harkens back to John Carter, and I don't. I don't have the evidence to demonstrate that George Lucas was influenced by john carter but i know that he was influenced by old sci-fi i mean you don't have to be a a rocket science to figure that out but i'm pretty sure that's on record and so it's um so it's it's no surprise that some of the terms from john carter if not directly like similar um you you could i mean jed and jedi banth bantha there, there are a couple of similarities that i keep noting here and there but um if not directly similar, then there's, certain, there's a certain linguistic sort of tradition is carried on, I think, in Star Wars. So whether the Z- zitidars look more like a bantha or more just like an elephant, I cannot say. They are supposed to be big and hefty. They are draft animals. They pull things. They lug things around. That's what they do, and that's all they do. Let's see another another animal. Um, and this might be the first one that we we encounter on Barsoom is the thoat. The thoat is um, well, it's it's a little bit. It's a horse first of all. That's if you if you want the easy equ thing to equate it to. It's a horse. Uh, it has eight legs, so it's a little bit different in that sense than a horse. But um, it is a horse, its head splits almost in two but by its mouth. It's got a big big, broad mouth. It also has a big broad tail, almost like a a, 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 be, a beaver's tail almost. It's used as essentially as beasts, well, no, I was gonna say beasts of burden, but that's that's more I think of the zitadar. So it's it's used more like well a horse, a war horse or a, tra- a transport mode of transportation by both the green Martians and the red Martians. There are small thoats which the red martians ride and then there are larger ones for the green martians i i imagine that's just a a question of breeding you know just just optimizing your breed because i went to this um wild or this livestock show 2 weeks ago i feel like i can talk about breeding and things like that as if though i'm an expert because i've been to a show where there were animals so obviously i know what i'm talking about so yeah, the thoats, um, they're kind of a staple animal. I kind of get the feeling that they're one of the early companion animals for, for the, the Barsumians. I, I don't know that I can back that up, but it's little hints. Like, uh, th- they, they have thoat oil for, I think, lamps or something, to, to burn in lamps and things like that. So you kind of get that sense that it was one of those animals... That they that that were utilitarian from a very early stage in development. Although I mean, by the time we get to Barsoom, we're so far near supposedly the end of the world that it, it's almost silly to even speculate. But nevertheless, that's what I'm doing. I'm saying I think that the Thoats were probably very early on designated as like utilitarian animals, and if they're alive, then it's great because they can work. If they can no longer work, then we're going to kill them and we're going to use every single bit of them for for keeping things going, whether it's uh, oil in our lamps or maybe the hide for clothes and whatever else you do with, with horse parts or thoat parts. So that's that's a thoat. You'll hear about thoats all throughout the books. It's, it's one of the essentials. It's just a thing, the thoat. It's a thoat, it's a thoat, it's a thoat. They don't really use um, vehicles on the ground all that much. Honestly, that I can think of at all. They're, they really defer to thoughts, And I like that about this sci-fi world. And I know that this was probably heavily influenced by simply what Edgar Rice Burroughs was seeing in the modern time, and then, you know, maybe as, long, as far as any of us can look sort of into the future based on what's going on around us. Um, but as a sci-fi thing, I, I just love that there's that sort of it's almost an advanced civilization in a way where they where they kind of acknowledge that it's actually it just makes more sense to ride the thoats around on the ground rather than go to the trouble of developing all this technology for ground transport when we've got something perfectly serviceable right here we'll we'll do with thoats and zitadars and then for air travel now okay well we we don't apparently have. Any kind of winged animal that we can harness, so we shall instead develop airships and so on. So I really like that sort of that mixed culture of of this ancient or of this uh, of this yeah, I mean ancient in the sense that it has been a long, it's been around for such a long time. This ancient culture uh, that is that's near the end of its life, right? the 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 Martian world is dying, and and yet like. Either the way that they're dealing with that or, or the way they've simply developed has been to use the natural resources around them and then develop technology for the things that, that, for whatever reason, the natural resources aren't providing. There are a couple more animals I should cover. Get this. The Sith. S-I-T-H. These are huge hornets. Imagine if you can a bald-faced hornet of your earthly experience, grown to the size of a prize Hereford bull, and you will have some faint conception of the ferocious appearance and awesome formid- f- formidability of the winged monster that bore down upon me, frightful jaws in front of In front and mighty poisoned sting behind made my relatively puny longsword seem a pitiful weapon of defense indeed. Nor could I hope to escape the lightning like movements or hide from those myriad facet eyes which covered three fourths of the hideous head, permitting the creature to see in all directions at one and the same time. So, uh, this is the Sith, and that is S I T H. I just want to emphasize what I was saying earlier about maybe this possibly being an influence on latter day sci-fi and it is it's a big it's a big big hornet the size of a bull uh this hangs out sort of in that jungle swamp area and tries its best to kill John Carter and his um his trusty hound i think the final animal life i have written down here is apt apt these are beasts of the frozen north they're, I mean, for, you could call them an abominable snowman, I guess, for lack of, a, lack of a better idea. They're huge, white-furred creatures with six limbs, four of which, short and heavy, carry it swiftly over the snow and ice, while the other two, growing forward from its shoulders on either side of its long, powerful neck, terminate in white, hairless hands which, uh, with which it seizes and holds its prey. Its head and mouth are more similar in appearance to those of a hippopotamus than to any other earthly animal, except that from the sides of the lower jawbone, two mighty horns curve slightly downward toward the front. Its two huge eyes inspired my greatest curiosity. They extend in two vast oval patches from the center of the top of the cranium, down either side of the head to below the roots of the horns so that these weapons really grow out from the lower part of the eyes which are composed of several thousand ocelli each this eye structure seemed remarkable in a beast whose haunts were upon a glaring field of ice and snow and though i found upon minute examination of several that we killed, that each ocellus is for, is furnished with its own lid, and that the animal can at will close as many of the facets as his huge eye as he chooses, yet I was positive that nature had thus equipped him, because much of his life was to be spent in dark, subterranean recesses. So that's, um, those are the apts. I think they they tend to, um... Stand about eight feet tall, I think, when they're actually standing on their hind legs. But it sounds like they don't necessarily do that that often. And they are um, certainly an interesting sounding beast. I, I I think some of the anatomy of 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 the apt probably makes up for the sort of stock, sort of uh, the, the sort of plain ape. But let's make it white instead of uh, black or orange, that, that kind of thing. This is truly unique, I think uh and that's that's pretty cool. They are they're absolutely ferocious. Um they th- I have to say that in in many um in many cases he he kind of he talks up the animals more than we actually see the ferocity of them and that's a, maybe a little bit disappointing but in terms of pitting it against your own fictional character whether in um in a story or in a game uh this thing is apparently in, in essentially, an eternal rage, a, a perpetual bestial rage is what is is how it is described says um he stood head-on eyeing us as we approached him for he had for we had found it a waste of time to attempt to escape the perpetual bestial rage which seems to possess these demon creatures who rove the dismal who rove the dismal north attacking every living thing that comes within the scope of his of their far-seeing eyes so yeah it is it's a pretty ferocious creature and um as you may have caught on from from previous episodes, I'm kind of a sucker for the the ice escapes and the frozen landscapes and the the frozen cultures. And so this is this is very much this this appeals to me a lot. Why it is in the ice, I don't know. Like I, I don't have a super clear idea of of the of, of why this creature chooses to hang out in the in the frozen wastelands of the north. I don't know why it hasn't migrated away from that. But it does sound like it actually hangs out underground. And that kind of goes... You know, that sort of speaks of that underworld of the um, Lovecraft uh, realm. So, I don't know, maybe there's some kind of mixture between the frozen north and the underground... Sort of the underdark uh, of the Forgotten Realms kind of style of of society going on here. Who knows? But it's, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool beast to... Um, to try to fight. So let's talk a little bit about the ecology uh, of Barsoom. We don't have a whole lot of description of how, of, of kind of the the landscapes of Barsoom, and I, I feel like in a weird way that's one of the things that's really, really missing from the books, because um, of course in, in most modern Mines, in Barsoom is just a red desert. I mean, we've literally seen pictures now, so it's hard to kind of separate what Edgar Rice Burroughs was thinking when he was writing these versus what we know to be there right now. Especially since he does also emphasize that Mars is a dying planet at the time of the book. So at, at the time of the stories, so it's it's difficult to kind of separate red, barren desert world. From what might have been seen in his mind's eye, and he doesn't help us along all that much. He doesn't really give us many descriptions of what we're of what we're anticipating, or what, of what we should be um, picturing in our head. One one ecosystem that we are privy to is the North, the the very very high North is um, just like our own. It's an Arctic wasteland. It's got um, lots of snow, and yet some creatures the um, Yellow Martians live up there in the snow, and they, they're quite happy there, and they're quite isolated because they're surrounded by an arctic wasteland. So we get a little bit of a, of a sense for that. Similarly, we get a description of a land uh, known as Kaol, K-A-O-L, and that seems to be um, a little bit of a, a, a forest or a, a jungle, and I will read a slight, a small description, because this is one of the richer descriptions that he provides. Actually, slender purple grasses topped with red and yellow fern-like fronds grew rankly all around, all about us, to the height of several feet above my head. Myriad creepers hung festooned in graceful loops from tree to tree. And among them were several varieties of the Martian man-flower, whose blooms have eyes and hands with which to see and seize the insects which form their diet. The repulsive callet tree, too, was much in evidence. It is a carnivorous plant of about the bigness of a large sagebrush, such as dots our western plains. Each branch ends in a set of strong jaws, which have been known to drag down and devour large and formidable beasts of prey. Both Woola and I had several narrow escapes from these greedy, arborous monsters. Occasional areas of firm sod gave us intervals of rest from the arduous labor of traversing this gorgeous twilight swamp, and it was upon one of these that I finally decided to make camp for the night, which my chronometer warned me would soon be upon us. Many varieties of fruit grew in abundance, in abundance about us, and as Martian calots were omnivorous, Woola had no difficulty in making a square meal after I had brought down the, vi- the viands for him. Then, having eaten two, I lay, down, uh, I lay down with my back to that of my faithful hound, and dropped into a deep and dreamless sleep. The forest was shrouded in impenetrable darkness, when a low growl from Woola awakened me. All I all about us I could hear the stealthy movement of great padded feet, and now and then the wicked gleam of green eyes upon us. Arising, I drew my long sword and waited. It's a great passage. And it describes it I mean this is like I say, this is some of the richest um descriptions he provides, honestly, throughout the whole books, and this is in Warlords of Mars. Uh oh that's the third book, isn't it? Warlords. Um The uh yeah, second one is is Gods. Uh first one is Princess. Um Slender Purple Grasses beautiful. Red and yellow fern-like fronds. It's nice. Um, but the the things that we're, we're really kind of looking at here are the, the Martian manflower, a plant with eyes and hands that catch insects. It's unclear whether that is literally a plant man, or whether that's just a completely different thing. I believe it's a different thing, because not long after this segment, he actually does encounter plant men, and they're attacking a city. So I, I don't know why... They would just be hanging out in the swamp jungle, letting John Carter pass by. I, th- I feel like that would be a much more exciting fight. So I think they are just plants. There's also the Kallet tree, which bizarrely has the same uh, name as the 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 callets, The the Woola w- Woola the Kallet um, is a, a, a. You you hear John Carter describe him as a hound, uh, but then also there's a Kallet tree which. Uh, is an omniv uh, is a carnivorous plant of about the bigness and largeness of a sagebrush, uh, and it has strong jaws and tries to eat things. So it's kind of kind of confusing. You you get a, a essentially a a man flower, which is kind of like saying a plant man, and a caillet tree, which is literally already the name of the hound. It is a little bit a um, little bit difficult. It's maybe like Edgar Rice Burroughs just couldn't think of good plants, and just thought, well, one could be like a man with eyes and hands, and the other could be like a dog with a big, powerful jaw, forgetting sort of that he was also describing a man and a dog going through the forest. So I I feel like that's just a little bit confusing, but if you read it carefully and and look at the intent, it does seem like they're both innocently, just circumstantially, plants that that remind us of a human and a dog, or or a a dog-like a reptile called a callet and there's no it's it's just coincidence that that those two things are also other things um and that's fine that's fine but then that's so that's the that's sort of the plant life as, as such as we know on barsoom i mean there are hints here and there of other forms of both beast and plant but those are the ones that stood out the most that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Clatu. You can reach me uh, via email at clatu@member.fsf.org. at member.fsf.org. You can also usually catch me in IRC as notclatu. I'm on the Freenode Network. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.